to Hazel and Katniss and Harry and Star, a young adult literature podcast, their film and television adaptations, and everything in between. I'm Joe. And I'm Brenna. <laughs> and our show is created on the traditional lands of the Haudenosaunee, the Huron-Wendat, and the Anishinaabe on lands connected to the Toronto Purchase Treaty 13 of 1805. And on the Tecumloops Tay-Swetmik territory within the unceded traditional lands of Swetmik Ulu. And today's text, A Tree Grows in Brooklyn, is set in Brooklyn, mm-hmm. which is the traditional home of the Muncie, Lenape, and Canarsie peoples. Yeah. Of whom we see no reference at all. Oh, there's one racist reference at the beginning. There is a lot, yes. Yeah. And <laughs> folks, we yeah. should acknowledge that A Tree Grows in Brooklyn is a 1943 book and a 1945 film. So, yeah, there are elements of both texts that have not aged well. Yeah. And before we get into that, we should probably acknowledge that even the person who recommended these texts to us, so our listener Emma, who asked us to cover this, even she in her email said, hey, (laughs) some of this has not done super, super well. You know what? I have to be honest. It was not as troubling as I expected it to be. No. I mean, definitely the whole premise of the book is pretty sexist, and definitely there are a lot of racist references throughout the book um, Mm -hmm. to all kinds of groups of people but it's interesting because that really impacts the scenes where brooklyn is the backdrop but Mm -hmm. it doesn't go into the character study i guess is what i'm saying and that is helpful it makes it so that you can actually like read the book (laughs) frankly right and i think that's also one of the reasons why this text has been critically lauded and why it's to a certain extent survived the test of time Because at the end of the day, it's definitely about a marginalized group of people living Mm -hmm. within a particular community, Mm -hmm. which is pretty Mm homonormative. But for me, at the end of the day, this book is really about class. It's all about Mm -hmm. money. And that's kind of a universal equalizer. Yeah, this is very much a book about poverty, about the experience of poverty, about the things that poor people tell themselves to get up in the morning and about whether or not those stories and the very story of the American dream, whether or not that is the truth. And I think this is a classic of American literature that you can compare alongside something like Death of a Salesman, Mm. I would say, in that I think your position in the world really impacts how you read these characters and whether you think that they have amounted to you know quote unquote something or not Mm -hmm. yeah because this book is really about what do you do when you have nothing and what do you envision for the future like it is multi-generational it's about each member of this family trying to work a little bit harder so that the next generation can work a little less hard and Mm -hmm. I don't know about you, but there's something hollow about the end of the book where everything just kind of magically comes together. And it's very much the American dream. If you work hard enough, you can become it. Well, it is and it isn't, right? Because ultimately, what resolves the conflict, despite what Katie sort of says, what she pays lip service to, what resolves the conflict is... Marriage. Is a marriage. With lots of money. Ultimately, the resolution out of poverty for this family is not so different as it was for a Jane Austen protagonist, which yes. is ultimately you you marry and that's what gives you opportunity. And the children are assured passage through college because of that, right? Like mm-hmm. imagine 
it's one thing to read about Francie's sort of hard scrabble attempts to get herself into college with absolutely no high school education. Yes. And being impressed that she does it. And then her actual ability to go to the college that some, by the way, random boy chooses for her. Oof. Yeah. Uh, which would o- can only be financed through the marriage. Mm-hmm. So yes. I think... That's what I mean about, you know, on the one hand, it's this story about perseverance and the American dream and success in spite of all kinds of systemic pressures. And on the other hand, it's sort of a courtly romance, like ultimately. Oh, sure. Like, thank goodness we've got this uh, handsome suitor with a dead wife circling on the periphery because (laughs) if not, all of our dreams may not have magically come true. Right? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So, Brenna, what is A Tree Grows in Brooklyn about? Okay, let me tell you. By the way, A Tree Grows in Brooklyn is about 500 GD pages. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes, it is. It's got a slice of life for every little innocuous incident you may ever encounter in your lifetime. And, you know, I really liked how quiet and gentle and slow the development was like when I actually Mm -hmm. sat down to read I found the book extremely I don't know cozy even when it's talking about the hard parts but if you can only read for like 15 minutes a day which is often like what I give myself to move through the books for this show you are not going to make up any ground in 15 minutes a day you are just not we were definitely exchanging some fairly frantic text messages (laughs) about Oh, this book is so long. Oh, you need to start this book right now. Yeah, that was the first thing I said to Joe. I was like, have you looked at how long this book is? Have you started it? It didn't look that long. And then I cracked it open and saw that the writing was quite a bit smaller than I'm used to with my YA projects. It's true. And I was blessed with a bout of insomnia on Monday night, which Mm -hmm. allowed me to basically blow through. I think I read about 400 pages of it Monday night. There you go. But until then, I found it really difficult to get into. So I think Mm -hmm. I say all that not as a criticism of the book itself, but that like many texts we've tackled on the show, you know, I think our Jane Austen experience with Emma is another example. Like there are some books that do not lend themselves to a one week turnaround time. No, No. And this is one. This is one. Yeah. Yeah. I think the other thing we should probably acknowledge off the top is that this is not a classically defined YA text. No. It's definitely a coming-of-age story for Francie, who is Mm -hmm. the protagonist, but it's very much also a study of a marriage and a conversation about class. The thing is that the book is entirely focalized, pretty much, except for a flashback in book two. Yes. By Francie. So we see and experience the world through Francie's eyes for the most part, which is why... I'm content to fold the book under YA. Mm -hmm. I think the film significantly less so, but we'll talk about that when we get to the film. Right. Okay. So uh, our protagonist, as I said, is Francie Nolan. She's 11 years old at the top of the book. And there's five books, and I think it roughly takes place over five years. Uh, She is 17 by the end of the book. Yeah. Okay. So So just just about. Mm -hmm. Okay. She has a brother, uh, Neely, which is short for Cornelius, and their parents are Johnny and Kate. So Johnny is the son of Irish immigrants. Katie is the daughter of German or Austrian immigrants? German, I think. Yes. Okay. And they live in a tenement neighborhood in Brooklyn. They're sort of unique amongst the people in their community because Johnny and Katie were both born in America. Most of the right. kids, Francie's age, their parents are themselves immigrants, but... That's sort of a privilege with limited 
power. <laughs> doesn't get them very far, does it? <laughs> no, because ultimately, you know, Johnny is a dreamer and a bit of a fantasist and someone who really wants to be, you know, kind of quote unquote someone, be a performer. But actually, he's a singing waiter with a drinking problem who mm-hmm. becomes increasingly unreliable over the course of the narrative. And that's not news. You're told at the very beginning of the book that Johnny will die before he's 35. Yes. And then you promptly forget about it. And then he (laughs) dies and you're like, oh, right. Yes, I did know this was coming. (laughs) You did warn us. And so Katie really has to make up the difference. So I mean, let's be honest. Katie makes up everything. (laughs) Katie makes up everything. Yeah. The film could be subtitled like Katie's crappy life. (laughs) Oh, yes. About how put upon Katie is. And I think Johnny is a much less sympathetic character in the film than he is in the book. Like in the book, you really wish for his circumstance to be different while knowing that it can't possibly be. Mm -hmm. Well, part of that is that they're both super young when they get married and have a child. Yes. She's 19 and he's 20, I believe. Mm -hmm. And so they are really on their own. You know, they have a series of jobs early in their marriage. Like, they're they're almost kind of making it for a little while. And then when Francie is born, Johnny kind of has a bit of a breakdown. And that's sort of a theme throughout the text is that Johnny, in stressful situations, is not able to cope. And there's this kind of bookend that happens in the book. His first breakdown, his first sort of drinking binge where he doesn't come home is the night that Francie is born. Mm-hmm. And his final one is the night he finds out that they're going to have another baby. Yes, although it's a kind of falling off the wagon of a different sort, where he's actually trying to make amends, but his yeah. pneumonia and alcoholism catches up to him. Yeah, he's basically, he's he's too far gone in, in terms of alcoholism to be able to stop drinking, basically. Mm-hmm. So that's really the anchor of the story, is that Francie is growing up in this impoverished, irregular environment. Like, she doesn't have sort of stability. The family has to move a lot until they come to the last tenement they live in, ultimately. And throughout, we see that Francie is resourceful and, you know, she earns money for the family, as does Neely. She's very committed to her studies, but she wants more than what is going to be possible. Yes. And there's this ongoing tension between her and Katie because Katie (laughs) wants her daughter to want more, but she doesn't want her daughter to want so much that she thinks she's better than her. And well, and also that she loves Neely, yeah. the son, more, more and thinks that she's hiding it from Francie, but is not. Not and at all. There's so much uncomfortable tension where every time Francie, who really is the golden child of the book, she's the smart yes. one. She's the one who can help them escape poverty. Yes. And Katie just continually is like, mm, you're not as good. I'm going to privilege this dumb kid who's closer <laughs> to my husband. Yeah. Because my husband is slowly dying in front of my eyes. The great irony, of course, being that Francie is Johnny's favorite. And Mm -hmm. Johnny sees Francie as full of all this potential that he can't help her with. And so in many ways, like, (laughs) the parent who actually loves her the best, she's also kind of slowly killing because he can't handle, like, being face-to-face with her and seeing what she doesn't have access to. It's a really troubled, difficult family story. It takes Mm -hmm. place in, starts in 1912, goes through to the U.S. entering World War I, Mm -hmm. basically, And there's all kinds of little moments. Like, we could spend a million times on all the little moments. Like, 
Francie almost sleeping with a soldier or her, her job at the ma- at the newspaper clipping farm or mm-hmm. the arrival of the new baby and how that almost brings Francie together with Katie, but then doesn't ultimately. But yeah, really, there's not. There's simultaneously a lot of stuff that happens. Yes. And not really a plot. Yeah, and that's why I I almost called it a slice-of-life vignette. In my mind, I was thinking, okay, there's so much that I think if this was published nowadays, we would probably see a large portion of this book excised for the service of the plot. Like, let's move it along year by year. Let's get Francie to university and so on. But I gather that one of the things that people really respond to in this text is these little quiet moments, like the moments that ring authentically true to everybody about a desperate struggle to bring home a Christmas tree and how it unites the tenement together. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of little moments that really resonated for me. I think one of my favorites is early in the text when Johnny comes home from a successful wedding gig. Mm-hmm. and he's coming home with all the leftover party food the bride yes. it up for all the waiters to take home and the kids get up and there's this like i don't know i i have very fond memories not of that happening as a kid but those moments when for some reason you're roused out of your sleep and there's this like family moment mm-hmm. and it's impromptu and yeah. so memorable yeah and i those were the kinds of moments that really stuck with me and i respect the book for being centered in quietness like i think Mm -hmm. if i had read this in different circumstances that would have been something i found very soothing yes i can see why people see this as very much like a comfort text even though it's all about struggle it's also all about resilience right and the ways in which our dreams change because of our circumstances but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're lesser dreams if that makes sense Yeah. Now, I'm interested that you say that because in some way we're looking at this as a bit of a nostalgic comfort food kind of text. But it's important to look at the situation in which it was published. So this was published right around the time of the Second World War. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons it became such a phenomenon is because it was republished in a way that Yes. They could give it to U.S. Army men who were traveling abroad. Mm Mm-hmm. And I think that that's fascinating. And in some ways, this book is about publishing because that's part of Francie's chosen profession. Like she wants to be educated, but she also ends up working for newspapers. She works as a reader. Well, and this is very much a semi-autobiographical story. Like it really is a portrait of an artist kind of story for sure. Absolutely. I was reading about the armed services editions, which were like these paperbacks that soldiers used to be provided with. Mm -hmm. I wonder if they still do that. I don't know. I was very intrigued. I mean, you hear about like pocket-sized versions of Dostoevsky or Les Mis or something, right? Yeah. And I've always been intrigued by like, how do you decide what to cut down? Or is it just that you've made the font smaller, the book smaller, and so on? Well, that's what I was thinking because they, so they made it the size of a mass market paperback that would fit in a uniform pocket. So that's going to be pretty small. Mm-hmm. How tiny was the font on this book? That's what I'm thinking. My trade paper was... <laughs> My trade paperback version was tidy enough, you know? I ended up reading an ebook instead. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting old and tired. Oh, your eyes. <laughs> <laughs> but it was a pretty amazing, like, during the Second World War, and in fact, if you go to the Wikipedia page uh, for Armed Services Editions, the picture is of a soldier reading A Tree Grows in Brooklyn. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. 
Yeah, and apparently just in the period of the Second World War, 122 million books were distributed. Jeez. 1,300 different titles, 122 million copies. Like, that's cool. That is madness. What a really neat literacy project. It would be interesting... Now I'm describing a research project, but wouldn't it be interesting to look at the list of titles that were provided to soldiers and what the larger sort of narrative might be? Because, mm-hmm. I mean, the military doesn't do anything without thinking about, like, larger resonances. Oh, absolutely. And I I think this is a very specifically deliberate, like, this is about the American myth and celebrating mm-hmm. the immigrant experience into the American melting pot and the American dream, right? Yeah, on the Wikipedia, they have a quote that one Marine sent to Betty Smith. I'm not actually sure we said this book was written by Betty Smith yet. We have not, no. Okay, uh, so True Crew Brooklyn is written by Betty Smith. Oh, okay. <laughs> and uh, they have a quote on the Wikipedia page, something that a Marine wrote to her. I can't explain the emotional reaction that took place in this dead heart of mine. A surge wow. of confidence has swept through me, and I feel that maybe a fellow has a fighting chance in this world after all. Hmm. And I can see it. I can see it because I think that the time is important, right? Like you're looking back in history, you're looking back at a little girl surviving through a pretty tumultuous and precarious period. Mm -hmm. But also, you know, the fact that she's an impoverished girl from Brooklyn. I'm guessing that particularly the pre-draft soldiers, that would have spoken to them substantially. So... It's an interesting thing, but it solidified this book because soldiers came back from war and they had a favorite book and it was Mm -hmm. Tree Grows in Brooklyn, which I guess is why the movie comes out in 45. I mean, that's a pretty fast turnaround for the time period, hey? Yes. Apparently the book was optioned before it was even published and that's why it was able to come out so quickly. It was also a Broadway musical in 1951 Mm -hmm. and then a made-for-TV movie in 1974. Uh, And also a comic strip. In 1944, it was adapted into an ongoing sort of running comic strip. Which I actually can see very easily. Oh, yeah, because it's vignettes. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's interesting. I'm thinking back to last week's conversation about Mango Street. Mm -hmm. This is really, in many ways, like a non-stripped back Mango Street, right? Like, Mango Street, you can tell, is written by a poet because she's so careful about individual word choices. And Mm -hmm. because she had that overarching... like. Cisneros was never going to write a book that was 500 pages because her whole drive was to write books that working Latino men would come home and pick up at the end of the day, right? Mm -hmm. Well, she didn't have the advantage of getting the book into the hands of drafted soldiers. No, (laughs) seriously. But you can see the DNA, right? And maybe it's just a uniquely kind of American literary heritage, but this, this story of poverty and how literacy and education are sort of transformative, but they also result in loss, right? Because in both Mm -hmm. stories, we have a protagonist who is ultimately going to lose connection to her mother in spite of all the sacrifices that mother has made so that she could have that education in the first place, right? Yes. And I do love the fact that this isn't even something that's driven by Katie. This is something that's driven by Katie's own mother, who is the immigrant to America, and how she was basically swindled out of land, which would have Mm -hmm. helped the family to survive and thrive even. If she could have read. If she could have read. If she could have read, right? 
Now, thinking about the connection to literacy, I do want to circle back to Mango Street because I do think we have more to talk about. But also, I want to bring up another conversation piece that Emma included in her email, which is how this book can be seen as an American companion to something like Anne of Green Gables with its plucky literate heroine. Oh, I dig that. Yeah. And, And I did respond to Francie in much the same way. It's interesting because... Anne comes from this space of lack and deprivation, much as mm-hmm. Francie does. But once Anne is discovered, for lack of a better word, for who she is by about midway through the book, yes. the entire community is dedicated to Anne's success, right? Like yes. people give up their positions at university, people donate money, people make sure she has the best dress. And mm-hmm. like the community rallies together because she becomes our girl. Right. That never happens for Francie. No. She has basically one teacher at the fancy school who takes an interest in her. But but that well. school... Well, that <laughs> school ends up crushing her. So Francie writes these compositions. Right. They're basically odes to her father. <laughs> yes, yeah, she writes four of them about her father. And about her father's, you know, descent. And this idea that he's a good man who has failed and will effectively continue to fail... And in the film version, they mm. they completely change it, right? In the film version, the teacher's like, it's nice to write about sad things and you go get them, kid. But in the book, her teacher's like, nobody wants to read this. I found this depressing. Like, yeah. please don't do this. I don't want to hear about your drunk dad. Please yeah. stop writing about him. Yeah. Like, she almost fails English class, even though she's clearly the best writer in the Mm -hmm. school because the teacher doesn't want to read her sad stories anymore and Francie ultimately stops handing them in because she she doesn't want to lie like she comes to see the fantastical compositions of her childhood as lies and she wants to celebrate the life she's actually living and there's no space for that for her Mm -hmm. so it's really interesting to me the contrast between the two narratives I definitely felt like this, to me, was the most autobiographical component of the book. Like, you could feel her writing A Tree Grows in Brooklyn, and maybe not even knowing at the time that she was writing it how successful it would be. But Mm -hmm. I love to think of her getting to lord this over her former educator and say, oh, nobody wants to read my sad stories, do they? (laughs) (laughs) I love that because I love spite. You know, it's my favorite. (laughs) little known fact on this podcast because you all think that Brenna's super chipper (laughs) she loves a good mean-spirited spite I'm strongly motivated by spite (laughs) but I think that contrast is so interesting and I wonder if there's something about American literature versus Canadian literature in the idea of the rugged individualism of Mm -hmm. Francie's story like no one is in her corner once her dad dies no and you know, her mom is all set to be like, well, you leave school because here's the logic. Neely hates school more than you. So if I kick you out of school to support the family, you'll find your way back. Mm -hmm. But if I kick Neely out of school, he'll just go work and he'll never go back to school. It's like, wow, that is, that is some logic, mama. It's a little bit of reverse (laughs) intuitive logic. I got, you understand where Katie is coming from. And I do love the fact that it's always clear that, Rancy knows that Katie likes Neely better, but that mm-hmm. also even Katie knows this. She's not fooling anyone, and yet and she yet. can't help herself from making these 
misinformed decisions. Yes. So, you know, Francie's story is very much about the individual and resilience and rising above and, you know, you support your family, but also you do what's right for you, even if it doesn't, even Mm -hmm. if it isn't what the other people around you want. Whereas Anne's story is very much about find the right community for you and everything is possible. Yeah. 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 And then I think Mango Street kind of falls somewhere in the middle because there is that sense of community, but there's also, you know, there's so many elements that I recognize from Mango Street about the treatment of women and slut shaming and that kind of stuff. And that really comes through in, I was surprised, a text as old as A Tree Grows in Brooklyn, which has a very feminist lean to it like it is very sympathetic to single mothers and women who have children out of wedlock and all of these kinds of things so much more progressive than i was expecting from a book in the 40s there's an ongoing and i find fascinating theme in this book about women who hate women yeah oh boy is there ever (laughs) francie has no girlfriends no she learns to distrust them based on the way that women in the tenement treat an unwed young mother yes and at one point francie says to her mother i will never be friends with girls i hate girls and francie's mother says that's really sad because you're Mm -hmm. a little girl and you should be able to find little girls who share your interests and who you can be friend and care about and francie says do you have any women friends nope and katie says no i hate women Yep. Meanwhile, Katie's entire support network, by the way, are two sisters and a mom. Mm-hmm. And so it's this really interesting thing where, you know, first of all, women in this community are in wild competition for like the four decent men who exist. Yes. Right? Men don't come off well in this book. They're either all opportunistic or they're cads. Yes. And yet women love them. Right. And even somebody <laughs> like Neely, we should care about him. He's... Oh, he's a brat. Part of the protagonist family, but he's a brat and he's on the road to becoming another man, just like all the other men, right? Mm -hmm. And that I found really fascinating. So we have this constant tension where women don't trust other women. They don't like other women, but their only community, their only support. You know, when Katie doesn't have money, it's women who come to her, her help. Or men who want to sleep with her. Or men who want to sleep with her, yeah, in fairness. In fairness. Or weirdly, who just want to have conversations with her, because apparently she's not just the most beautiful woman in the world, she's also the most incredible conversationalist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Katie is an angelic pedestal figure yes. to a lot of men in this community. Well, and that's an interesting thing about class too, right? Because yes, this is a very American story in that we can rise up out of class division. But, capital B, but... Katie is a lady, right? And most of the other women in the community are not ladies. What makes Katie special is the way she holds herself, the way she moves through space. Mm-hmm. And I'm fascinated by that too, because there's this kind of sense of like, yes, you can make anything of yourself and it's, you know, the work you do is who you are and blah, blah, blah. But also some people are inherently good. <laughs> you know? Well, I very much got a Cinderella kind of vibe Mm. from her, right? Where she's almost like a workhorse where she will get up before the children are awake so that she can clean the entire four stories. She cleans three tenement houses a day, Mm -hmm. every day from top to bottom. And then has Joe, a child. I don't remember the last time I cleaned our bathroom. <laughs> I know I did it, but like it wasn't today. No. And it's not going to be tomorrow. No. And then it's the weekend. So what are you going to do? Definitely not that. But 
every time they talk about the amount of work she does, it's like... It's exhausting. It's like, um, oh, who's that American legend? Um, oh, he's got a big ox. Oh, Paul Bunyan? Yeah, to me it's like an American tall tale almost. The the, uh... the way her her working is sort of held up. It's, it's an inhuman amount of work, right? Mm-hmm. But Katie does it. And that, at least in part, is the definition of her goodness. And that is what I found a little antiquated. Mm. I don't love the idea of the American myth, and I particularly don't like how it shaped things like U.S. politics yeah. in the modern age. You know, this idea that all you have to do is work and you can become successful as though there's no such thing as like racism or sexism or any of those things. Well, it's that bootstrap mentality, right? Very much so. Which, by the way, you literally can't lift yourself up by your bootstraps. Oh, good to know. I was reading a whole thing about the origin of that phrase. It started as a phrase to describe an impossible task because oh. you physically like, and I mean like physically in terms of like physics doesn't allow mm-hmm. you to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Which is hilarious considering right? what it's become. Right? Yeah. Yeah. But much like that example, that's what this book has propagated, right? If you think about this mm-hmm. book, which is a celebration of hard work equals goodness mm-hmm. equals good things will happen to you by the end of this story. Everything will work out fine. Just work yourself to the bone for 17 solid years while yes. people take constant advantage of you. And you are miserable and in physical pain. And eventually, a wealthy policeman turned assemblyman will marry you. Yeah. (laughs) I think that's the message of... No, it's not the message of the story. But I think in the back of my mind, that's what I worried people took away from this. Like, this is a celebration of working yourself to death or marriage. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's kind of what the film does in a slightly different way. Yes, let's talk about the film, please. (laughs) So great was the immediate demand for this story that its first printing was exhausted within a few weeks. And as its fame grew, five, ten, even twenty printings were not enough. Hundreds of thousands who could not buy copies borrowed them, while hundreds of thousands more read it as a serial in scores of newspapers across the country. Today, a tree grows in Brooklyn boasts an amazing, unprecedented number of readers, 65 million. But long before this figure was reached, the 20th Century Fox Studios bought the screen rights. Immediately, tons of letters were received, all of them suggesting the casting of its beloved and immortal characters. And here, in compliance with this phenomenal interest, are those characters as they will appear in the production. Okay, so the film was made two years after the publication of the novel, and it's notable because it is directed, it is the feature debut of one Alaya Kazan, who would go on to become one of the hallmark American directors. Oh, really? Oh, yeah, he did On the Waterfront, which is, like, classic of working class issues. I read the play. I mean, I think it's a great adaptation. Cool. So this is uh, an Academy Award-winning film. It has gone on to be recognized as a classic of American filmmaking. It's been, you know, put into the AFI Hall of Fame. Is this the fanciest film we've watched, Joe? It's one of them. Yeah. It felt fancy. Felt like I was watching something fancy. 
Yeah, I mean, I think in the same way that there's a bit of a haughty auteurness to mm -hmm. the way that the film is directed. Like, this is coming out in the golden age of cinema making. Like, when we watched The Outsiders, I was like, oh, you can see how Francis Ford Coppola is a direct descendant of the kind of filmmaking that Elia Kazan makes. Mm, okay. Just, you know, he didn't do it as well because he alighted a bunch of crap from the script whereas here <laughs> that actually works in the film's favor i would argue <laughs> yeah i think so too it's a much simpler story it's much more plot driven much less vignette driven yes very much that and also of the five books that the source material is divided into the film basically jettisons books four and five except yes. for the marriage for katie yes which was interesting because I did watch the movie halfway through the book. So then when I got to that part where Johnny dies and the mom is pregnant and you're like, okay, this book is going to wrap up. And then I realized, oh, no, the movie just got rid of a bunch of garbage. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Not garbage. Just I found, I found the parts where Francie is working in the book to be deeply frustrating because that's where she's becoming a woman. But also she's still a bit of a child idiot because she falls mm -hmm. in love with the first person who ever treats her kindly. And then mm -hmm. it ruins the nice boy who wants to date her. But yeah. also he makes decisions about her future by telling her that she's going to marry him in five years and it's problematic in that way but yeah without an engagement right we're gonna get married in five years but i'm gonna go live my life yeah <laughs> see ya and presumably he will do the same thing that this other guy did to her which was like oh i may be engaged to be married but i don't really love her and i'd love to sleep with you because you're here yep exactly Ugh. okay so this is interesting the film was primarily recognized for two performances. One of them is Peggy Ann Garner, who is the young actress who plays Francie Nolan. I think she's excellent. She is excellent. And she was recognized by the Oscars with like a special achievement for young acting. Oh, cool. Yeah. Do they still do that? Or is that an old fashioned thing? It's an old fashioned thing. That's now adorable. you got to compete with the bigwigs, so children have to compete against adults for acting awards. I would have liked to see her play Anne of Green Gables, actually. That's something that I thought a lot when I was watching the film. She feels pluckier mm -hmm. in the film as opposed mm -hmm. to the book. Like, she doesn't seem like she's having a lot of adventures because she is a bit of a daydreamer in the book, whereas in the film, she actually seems like more of a go-getter. Yes, agreed, 100%. I think it's also that she's presented in contrast to her younger brother, Neely, and he is a bit of an arse in the film. Like, they oh really make him a foil for her, so there's a combativeness to their relationship that isn't present in the book. Yeah, in the book, Francie just totally accepts that her mom loves Neely more. She's just like, yeah. yep, it's fine. It's what it is. It is what it is. <laughs> and in the film, she's she's really not having it. No. Yeah. Which I, I appreciated, because those scenes where she's just so loving to Neely... And it's not his fault, but that's not how kids react. Mm -mm. Kids resent, and she has no resentment in the book. So I appreciated a little bit of resentment. Again, I love go. a good bit of spite. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> it's the theme of today's episode. <laughs> Brought to you by spite. So the other performance that gets recognized, and I am interested to clock your reaction. You probably already know. Mm. It is James Dunn as yeah. Johnny Nolan got yep. recognized a yep. lot. And I... Nope. Can both see it, but nope. I don't agree with it. I mean, I don't know enough of the history of cinema to know like how surprising or... And there are moments in his performance that I think are really good. He he does a good job of not overplaying drunkenness, which mm -hmm. in classic cinema, you often see a sort of 
like a vaudevillian type presentation of drunkenness that doesn't happen here so that's nice but yes uh i'm i'm gonna quickly interject the reason that i think in part he is celebrated is because in real life james dunn was down and out for being a public drunk oh really so this was his big comeback after five years of not being readily employed in hollywood and then he came back to this Everybody was like, not sure you really want to do this. And then he won the Best Supporting Actor for this role. Okay. He's too old. He's too old. He's supposed to be young and hot. And he looks about a decade older than his wife. And it's a problem, not because it's a problem, but it doesn't make sense. The character doesn't make sense a decade older, right? Mm-hmm. Like the whole thing about Johnny is that he's he's tragic. He's cut short and he never fulfills his promise. Like yes. that's the whole arc of Johnny. If you make mm-hmm. him push in 50, it really <laughs> changes whether or not you find that. It just feels sad and I don't yes. sympathize with him anymore. No, exactly. I totally agree. I was reading some interesting stuff about the production code in this film. Oh, yeah. So we have not talked about Aunt Sissy at all. No, but so Aunt Sissy in the book is Katie's sister. Mm -hmm. She wouldn't describe herself as bigamous, but she has married several concurrent times, Mm -hmm. never in the Catholic Church. And therefore, she doesn't believe any of her marriages are real. And so when she gets tired of them, she just walks away from them. Sissy's also a super tragic figure in the book. She's had, I think by by the end of the book, she's had 12 pregnancies end in stillbirth or 11 i think it's 11 and the 12th is the successful one and only because she she goes goes to the hospital hospital. (laughs) she had no idea that you can give a baby oxygen and get them through that initial period that line broke my heart oh my god because she's the first person in the family to ever give birth in a hospital and Mm -hmm. the underlying message is that all of her pregnancies would have been successful if she had been able to access proper medical care like it's super tragic yes although we should make note that that is actually not how she gets her baby in the book that's the movie because in the book remember she randomly adopts well she gets two babies in the book she does the adoption and then she has the successful pregnancy in the hospital right yes okay so you're right but in the book she weirdly sort of forcibly adopts a baby who may or may not have been fathered by her own husband anyway Mm-hmm. it's such a weird subplot and i am glad that they cut it out of the film because i don't think it would have made sense so the original script production code authority didn't want to grant approval because sissy is bigamous and there was all that stuff about like character and morality in film at the time right yeah so it's why you weren't allowed to have villains succeed you weren't allowed to have queer people of any kind and women always they were allowed to step out of female related roles like being a mother but they either had to be punished or back in that role by the end of the film. And so they did approve Sissy's character in the end. They asked that she be toned down. Mm-hmm. But the thing that really made the studio move on Sissy was not the production code. It was a libel suit. Did you read about this, Joe? I did, yeah. So this is back to the autobiography yes! that Betty Smith ended up. Uh, oopsie. She ended up writing about her own, I guess it was her aunt? Cousin, her cousin, cousin. Sadie Gradner. Right. And uh, that's Sissy is basically a recontextualization Sissy of Sissy and Sadie. Sadie. Hmm. And um, yeah, she claimed that the character had been based on her and that she had suffered, quote, scorn and ridicule as a result. And so 20th Century Fox actually paid her $1,500 to shut up. To go away. Yeah. <laughs> 
sorry, kills me. I love that story because honestly, Sissy's kind of my favorite character in the film. Oh my gosh, she's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Joan Blondell is doing fantastic work. I find her so captivating. And again, it's the kind of performance that I don't expect to see in 1945 because no. this is a woman who enjoys sex, who wants yep. the fact that she's better than men. Yep. She's fantastic. She's everything. She steals every scene she's in. Like, she's yes. the only person I'm looking at, even in that Christmas scene where she's barely in it. I'm mm -hmm. just like, I'm only watching her. She's yeah. so good. I do love her. And I feel like we should also give a shout out to Dorothy McGuire, who is Katie Nolan. Oh, yeah, she's really good. Well, I want to recognize it because I think this is where the film struggles against a moniker like young adult, because mm -hmm. the film is still very much Francie's coming of age, but the film ends up being almost a split narrative between her coming of age and Katie's struggles to keep the family together. Yeah, I actually think the film is far more interested in Katie than Francie, and it's mm -hmm. why... It's why I don't really think of the film adaptation as being particularly YA. Also, because you truncate the narrative by correctly leaving out books four and five, you right. don't have the same kind of character arc for Francie no. anyway. She never comes to maturity. No, no. It's fascinating because the film ends on a very traditional note, right? Like mm -hmm. the last scenes of the film is when... Katie is proposed marriage by Officer McShane, who is played by Lloyd Nolan. Mm -hmm. And it's presented as a, oh, wow, okay, so this new baby's going to have a happy life. And we're just looking out at the Brooklyn slash New York City skyline. And mm -hmm. everything's now going to be okay. Mm -hmm. It does the same thing as the book, but it is such an expedient, almost yes. shortcut to the happy ending that it yes. almost feels unearned. <laughs> Again, you know, in the book, Katie's like, we're not marrying you for your money. Mm -hmm. And it's true. I don't think she's marrying her for her money. But all of the resolution in the plot comes from yes. McShane's money. Oh, absolutely. But in the movie, she's like, we're not marrying you for your money. And it's like, like, hell you sure, are. Sure, sure. <laughs> Me think Katie doth uh, protest a little too much there. And part of it is, you know, the book has been building up this affectionate relationship that McShane has for the Nolan family as a whole mm -hmm. from early in the text, right? Like, it's not just about McShane having the hots for Katie, though he does. Yes. Because he's also very caring towards Johnny, right? He steps right. in on more than one occasion to make sure that Johnny doesn't get into trouble with the law, to make sure that Johnny gets home safely. Like, mm -hmm. he cares about the family unit in the book. Yes. Whereas in the film, it's just kind of like... That hot lady has a nearly dead husband. I'm going to wait around. <laughs> well, he does help Johnny one time where he's discovered drunk in the street. But yeah, for the most part, it just kind of seems like he's lurking, waiting for Johnny to die. He brings the candy canes over in the movie. And it's like, is he coming by to check if the corpse is ready yet? Or like, what is he here for? Well, even the fact that they've already been gifted candy canes yes! by the saloon owner at that point, And Katie just is like... Hey, hot dude. Thanks for the candy canes. Never mentioning that they've already got a handful of candy canes. No, she does. That's the best part of the movie. She says, we already have some, but we can always use more. <laughs> it's like, Jeez. What, what is happening here? Yeah. I don't know. I, I enjoyed the film because I think it made a lot of wise decisions. I, mm -hmm. I went into it seeing the two hour runtime for a 500 page adaptation and I knew that they were going to cut stuff out and I thought it was funny at the end that I felt the film was in a way a bit of a stronger narrative it didn't make me yes. feel the same things that the book no. did but 
in a way, it felt like a more satisfying text because it had wisely removed some of that extra stuff. As much as I loved the scene in the book where Johnny takes the kids and their neighbor out on the ocean, <laughs> and then they get seasick and end up vomiting. Oh. <laughs> like, it's funny scene, and then the ending of that just broke my heart for Johnny. It was just like, over and over again in the book, you know, Johnny wants to do the right thing but has no idea how so like another mm -hmm. good example of that is when he decides he'll get voice lessons for the kids oh, because yes. katie gets piano lessons for the kids by cleaning for the piano teacher and so johnny's like well i'll fix your window to get voice, voice lessons, lessons for the kids yeah and then he just makes a hash of it he ends up smashing the window they have to pay somebody to come and fix the window and then katie has to go and clean up the mess that he's made and it's mm -hmm. just like Oh, Johnny. And that was the end of the voice lessons. <laughs> yeah, it was the end of the voice lessons. And the fishing scene is another one, you know? It's just like, well, in many ways, I guess he's the antithesis to Katie, right? Because he wants these picture-perfect moments, but he's not capable of working for them. And so mm -hmm. instead, he wants to kind of parachute into the ending scene where everybody's happy. Yes. And that doesn't work. Well, it reminds me of the narratives that you often get around divorce in more yeah. contemporary texts where... Totally. He's fun dad. Yeah, fun dad. And yeah. that's what Johnny is. But it works in the book specifically because he's so young. So you yes. often get this idea that he yes. is only a couple of years removed from his own children and he wants to be fun dad. Yeah. Whereas in the movie, I don't think it would have made sense. Like No, no, one, no one ever remarks about how much older he is. I didn't look up how old James Dunn is. He might just be an older looking young man in the film, but... He was already in his mid-40s when the film was made. Okay. So I think he looks older than that, but he was in his mid-40s. Right. What comes through in the film is his affection for his daughter. And a lot of people, mm -hmm. particularly reviews at the time, talk about how good it is to see James Dunn playing this role and how that relationship is the central emotional core of the film. And I find looking at it through my contemporary like 2021 lens, I disagree. I think it's all about the fractious relationship between Katie and Francie. Do you think some of that reading is contextual, though? Because James Dunn in the 20s, wasn't he Shirley Temple's co-star in a lot of things? Oh, he might have been. So I'm wondering if maybe it's like, you know how you go into a film and you have all of the history of that actor and it comes into the role? And so when you see James Dunn with Francie, it's like maybe you're just transposing his relationship to Shirley Temple there and as a much younger man as well, I wonder. I don't know. Yes, absolutely. I think it's very much a Robert Downey Jr. narrative where mm -hmm. we like them, we want them to succeed, but they can't overcome their vices. And then when they come back and do good, we mm -hmm. want to celebrate and recognize that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 I, I, yeah. I just also think in 1945, you're not going to get people praising the feminist components of the text no. No. because they're so smitten with this, you know, Hollywood comeback story. I get that. And to me, like, I can only see this film and see how feminist and progressive it feels while also adhering to the traditional codes of value from the time it was made. Yeah, I think it's interesting. I love watching these stories from the time period that sort of are sneakily offering the audience a different way of mm -hmm. looking at the world or living through the world. And I think this is a good example of that film. Yeah, I did 
quite like this. I agree with you that I don't think reading it in the space of a single week is the best way to consume it. But, um... But, you know, I'm glad. I've read the book before, but I have very few memories of it, and I don't think I ever would have picked up the film on my own. But I'm I'm really grateful to have had this experience, even if I don't think I gave the book fully its due. So thank right. you for the suggestion, Emma. I think it was a good one. Yes. All right. So, Brenna, I think that kind of wraps it up, but we should play a round of YA Bingo. feels kind of weird to play YA Bingo for this, but I'm game. <laughs> bingo! Not a good bingo. Okay, so, Brenna, do yes. you have anything? Neglect. <laughs> uh, yes, I will agree with that. <laughs> um, can we give a Forever Young to James Dunn? A failed Forever Young? Absolutely. <laughs> I think this is... Well, okay, you tell me. Mm-hmm. I think that this is a Chosen One narrative about Francie, but nobody else in the world knows that she's the Chosen One. <laughs> Only the reader. Interesting. I I don't disagree, but I also challenge how would that distinguish it from any other story with a first-person narrator? <laughs> oh, fine. Fine. <laughs> Whereas I would counter with something like maybe a rags-to-riches story. Oh, yeah, you're right. A rags-to-married-riches story. There we go. I think perfect date for that perfect Christmas. Oh, yeah, that's a good one. And, you know, also, Until the Soldier Goes Weird, that's kind of a perfect date from Francie's perspective. It really is, yeah. We didn't talk about it at all, and I just want to give a shout-out to how weird it is that Francie is sexually assaulted at one point, and it uh-huh. never seems to come back up. Uh, because the doctor's advice is convince her that she it was a horrible dream? Mm-hmm. If there's one part of this book that did not age well, it yeah. was that for me. Yep. It's so randomly inserted. And I just thought, no, get rid of this. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Um, Can we consider Francie a magic pixie dream person? If we think about how she's in a way kind of perfect. Yeah, but she's not facilitating the change in anybody else's life, unfortunately for her. Right. Okay. Yeah, Yeah, I agree. Um, All right. Is that it? I think that might be it. Oh, I'm going to also put in a dead body because oh, yeah. it is a huge plot point that the minute Johnny drops, we just start the countdown towards that marriage. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Yep. And actually, you know, there is quite a moving's the wrong word, but I found affecting scene when Katie is sitting in the hospital with him because mm. she's going to miss him and she loves him. But she also she has so much regret wound up in her relationship with him. Yeah. Not Francie, Katie. What did I say? Katie. I just really like that scene. Mm-hmm. So dead body it is. It is affecting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so shockingly enough, this not YA property did not do well <laughs> with our YA bingo. <laughs> oh, dear. All right, Joe. Well, we've looked at one of the greats of the American cinema and one of the greats of the American canon. Mm-hmm. Next week, what are we doing? <laughs> We're going super duper contemporary. So yes. we are going to check out a new film that is available on Hulu called The Ultimate Playlist of Noise, which is about a teenager who is slowly losing his sense of sound. Mm-hmm. I have no idea what to make of this film, Joe, so I'm looking forward to watching it. I am desperately worried it is going to be super cheese, but the musicality is going to be off the hook. Yeah, we know for sure there's going to be musicality. I'm a little bit worried that we're going to get that ableism box ticked off again, I have to say. Well, that is really where I want to center some of our conversation. Yeah. Yeah. 
looking forward to it. And then after that, our next full length book, if you want to get ready, I guess we're staying in the world of potential ableism with mm-hmm. words on bathroom walls. Yeah, we didn't even plan it. It just worked out this way. <laughs> it's just, just so much ableism in the world. <laughs> And I recognize that we're still a couple of weeks away from it, but Brenna, what is our next book club book that we're hoping people will both read along with, but also send us your responses to? Yes, please. Even if you start reading now and you've got thoughts now, send them to us. I say us. Joe will hang on to them. He will collect. (laughs) So we're reading Brown Girl Dreaming by Jacqueline Woodson, which it won a bunch of awards. It's in verse, so it's a fairly quick read. And also, you're just, you're really gonna like it. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so if you want to get a hold of us to give us your reactions to Brown Girl Dreaming as you begin to read along with us, you can do so by our fancy Twitter handle at HKHSpod, or you can still use the hashtag. We will keep checking for it. And that's just hashtag HKHSpod. And if you've got something longer, if you've got some longer thoughts on anything we're talking about, but particularly in anticipation of book club, you can find us at hkhspod at Mm gmail.com. If you want to talk to either one of us individually without telling the other one. (laughs) Jill, what's your Twitter handle? It's at a B still on my remote. And that's the letter B. And I'm at Brenna C. Gray. That's gray with an A. Send the spiteful stories to Brenna. Yes, I love anything with spite. (laughs) I really do. I think spite is underappreciated as a motivating factor in life. Fair enough. I told you about my English teacher who gave me a C (laughs) minus. Did you write an award-winning book that became an award-winning film? I didn't, but I got a doctorate in English. Like, that felt pretty good. There you go. Suck it. (laughs) Suck that, Brenna's teacher. Seriously. So until next time, I will see you on the page. (laughs) And I will see you on the screen. Spite, spite, spite. (laughs) Bye-bye. Bye-bye.